This is Media Business Matters, the podcast that explores why recent news in media matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Zintner. This week, we're going to take a little bit of a look at recent news in media at the end of our podcast. But first, we want to talk about the idea of windowing. So, Amanda, can you give us a basic look into what I mean by that word? So, windowing, in terms of the media business, we're talking about a strategy. It's a strategy that media industries use to drive revenue. More in more fancy terms, uh, it's a strategy that's focused on using price discrimination over time. So, usually we hear the word discrimination and we think of a bad thing. In, in terms of economics, price discrimination is the idea of different people paying different amounts for different products. And some media industries, we could think of, let's say, the book industry. There is price discrimination. One book does not cost the same as every other book, and typically. I, I also think about something like Amazon, because what Amazon does is it picks a price for you based on what you've bought and what you it thinks you might want to buy. So then it might change the price of an item correspondingly, like a book. It, like, it might say, you like this kind of book, maybe we'll make it cheaper so you're more willing to buy it. Or it might say, we know you're going to buy this book, so let's bump up the price on you a little bit. All right, so that's that's a whole other can of worms. But mm. where I was trying to get to was more the idea that, let's say if you go to see a movie, uh, when you go to see a movie, whether that movie cost $200 million to make or $100 million to make, the cost of seeing the movie is the same regardless. So there's not an opportunity for price discrimination. Okay, versus so, like a book where having, different types of books will have different prices. A more popular author or a more popular series will be more expensive. Like, I don't want to know how much I'm going to spend on the Cursed Child hardcover when I do buy that in December, but... Exactly. So windowing allows media industries to recognize that their products are valued differently by different people, and it's a way to try to exact more money from those people who really want the product, from those who, you know, yeah, sure, I'll watch it eventually. And so basically what, what windowing is, and it's sort of something that if you've existed in consumed media, you're aware of it, but you probably might not have recognized its name, just sort of that idea that content is in, available for different amounts of money and over time. What I, think about, what I think about in what you just said is that they are willing to squeeze money out of you at multiple possible points. So we, I think about, you know, a movie. They're going to get, try to get you to see it in theaters. And then they're going to try to get you to buy the DVD. And then they're going to try to get you to buy the digital copy if they don't give it to you with the DVD. So they're going to try to squeeze money out of you out of every possible point if you love something. Or what they're going to do is they're going to try, like, if you're less interested in seeing something, they're going to say, okay, maybe we didn't hit them in this window, so maybe we'll try to go after them in this next window, like within movies and on-demand release. Right. They might not get you to go to the theater to see it, but if it's priced, you know, less than 10 bucks on-demand, maybe you'll bite. So the key is that, especially with film, that as you are willing to wait longer and longer, typically the price point at which you can access the content decreases. So you or it might even be included in a streaming package you already pay for, for example, if you wait for a later, late enough window. Exactly. So that's an example of how windowing works in the film industry. In television, you can think of it as the original run of a television show that airs in prime time, let's say on a network or a channel, and then a later window would be when one of the typically a cable channel will buy the whole run, let's see, so you could watch Big Bang Theory probably every night on your local affiliate. Or on TBS, a cable channel will buy it as well. Exactly. 
and then maybe after that uh, there's a lot that's in flux with windows that's why we're talking about them yeah but then later yet there'd be perhaps another window historically maybe that would have been where streaming is but streaming's been inching up earlier in the in the streaming window. has kind of formed in a parallel window to syndication in a way exactly now. but we'll get more into that later but with books books would be another example uh, especially in popular releases they come out first in a hardback later they'll come out in paperback um, notably in that case it is actually a different good so the price point is different but also uh, a softback book is not as durable and has different features often than or has, has lesser is of is considered of lesser quality than a hardback but book. they might include more features like a paperback release might include say an interview with the author or let's say the next book in a series has come out when the paperback release comes out they'll throw in the first chapter of that next book i know kids books use that a lot to kind of hook you into a series that's true alex you, you are approaching this like a fan so that will be a, a helpful uh you are a helpful target for the later point of our discussion are there media industries that don't use windowing absolutely some media are timeliness is, is just crucial so news there really isn't a later window for news you're you know hearing the news of, of last week isn't going to do you any good well i would argue that there might be a window for a compilation of news like, there might be an, a window for, say, a compilation of all the stories from the presidential election or something like that. Eh, like, it, I know CNN is putting something together. I don't know if that's maybe an officially defined window as much as a window that they're trying to, news industries are trying to create to make more money. I think that's a stretch. And so okay. we can we can think about some news as not being as timely. So something mm -hmm. that's an investigative report would still have a considerable amount of value uh, later in time. But as we're talking about business strategies and overwhelmingly the news industry does not window its content. If we think back to those early days of digital distribution, the news industry did struggle quite a bit with that mm -hmm. in terms of not wanting to break news on their uh, electronic site be before the print site. I remember um, the first major story to be broken. Well, I don't remember it, but I've heard about the first major story to be broken in 95, Timothy McVeigh confessing. That was a big deal when Dallas Morning News went and broke that online. Thank you, Tony Collings. Shout out. And, of course, sports as well is yeah. a type of media that really there, there's no real value in delayed access. They try to create value. Like, the NFL has a package where you can buy essentially what's called a Game Pass, which includes live radio and later access to the broadcast. So you can actually watch the full broadcast, or even I think they create a shortened version of a game that you can pay for access. Or And they also sell DVDs after, sure. as such. So it, it's like news where there really isn't much value there, but the industries are trying to create it. Right, and, and there's certainly there's the ESPN Classics channel, but oh, yeah. in, in, in no way are we seeing those windows being important to those news and, and timeliness-driven industry as they are for television and film. I mean, television and film, we often focus all of our attention in terms of the current primetime schedule or this week's box office, but it's actually those later windows that many television and film products earn by far the great majority of their revenue. Yeah, something I wish we had a bit more access to is home video revenue, because movies tend to be written off a lot. Let's say they don't do very well at the box office, like something like Ghostbusters didn't do very well at the box office, Sony's taking a write-off. But I wonder what the home video revenue would be. It probably isn't enough to make up for the $70 million that Sony is writing down. But couldn't there be, you know, more money in there than oh, projected? Yeah. And, and there are uh, trade publications that keep track of that and publish it. It just sort of tends to not be something that 
drives you know, the 19 different reports you get from Variety over the weekend reporting on every little tiny bit of the box office. Oh, yeah. But let, let's get into really kind of the meat of this conversation about windowing and why we're talking about it, because really what's important in windowing is how it's changing for the digital time. Right. So much like previous podcasts where we talked about formats and, uh, you know, why are there so many sequels and franchises and things like that, this podcast falls in that category, looking at a particular strategy. And windowing is a strategy that worked a certain way for a long period of time, but it's one that's very much been called, uh, has been challenged by the new digital reality. Digital distribution has made content more available. In one way, the industries have been trying to figure out how to take advantage of that, but as a part of it, consumers have come to expect a kind of availability that was not part of the old windowing environment. In just to think about you know, something like television, it really used to be television, we talk about it as an ephemeral media because it was here and then it was gone. Ephemeral meaning it was here and then it disappeared for kind of forever? More or less, or you had so little control over over how you would access it. So to to go in the Wayback Machine, right, to my early days as a professor, all of the clips we would show would be on VHS, and we'd make copies of copies for each other Mm -hmm. because there was no other way to get, hey, did you see that thing? It it didn't exist anymore. A film professor actually still uses film reels of old content that he probably just has from those days. Right. It was also sort of that uncontrollability of... Now, if it's a current show, it might be syndicated, and maybe it'd be syndicated in three years. Uh, who knows when you'd be able to catch that episode typical that you wanted window, to see? You know, you'd, well, you might have to wait. You know, the typical window for TV is 100 episodes. So you might have to wait until you reach that 100th episode to even see one that you might have missed. Right, and that's a great example. Like, all of these hard and fast rules that we had, like you had to have 100 episodes to syndicate. And then it kind of became 88 and now, does is there even a hard and fast rule with cable syndication anymore? Much less so. Or cable syndication isn't the only secondary market in town. So yeah, all but- of this, uh, the digital, the availability of content has created new markets, which is the whole streaming, whether or not Netflix or Hulu or Amazon um, becomes a, a secondary window. But the other thing that's really significant about digitization and how it is challenging windowing as a practice is that it's really made it much more difficult for media industries to control their goods. And because for windowing to work, it was based on these time regimes, that that things wouldn't happen, you wouldn't be able to access it again for a year, two years, it wouldn't make it to Britain for three years, right? And there's just no way to enforce that kind of time segmentation in the contemporary connected digital space. Well, there's a couple of points I want to make there. And the first one, I think, maybe lies in something like security of good. Because once you put it online somewhere, it might be very easy for someone to go, say, rip the content from, you know, HBO or HBO Now, Netflix or something like that. I, I admit, I don't know a huge amount about the technical work that we need to go in there. But once it's out there, you're kind of releasing it to the hounds, so to speak. Absolutely. And and they're not hounds, they're people. Um, But if we think, (laughs) I mean, this is one of the ways that, let's say, the television industry has been very much challenged is that audiences in other markets simply, there's no reason for them to wait, right? Right. There's no reason if Game of Thrones, say, is going to air, you know, not in the spring, but the summer or the fall, why would they... You know, if they have access to it in less than legal ways, why would they wait for that legal way to get it? 
Right. And the other important way that digitization is, is affecting windowing and in terms of adding new strategies to media industries is that digitization has made direct-to-consumer transaction much more possible than it was when goods had to be disseminated either by a broadcaster that was linked to a linear schedule or it had to be shared on physical media. Well, when I, when I think about this, I think of film and I think of the kind of home home video market and how, I mean, there was always kind of that direct-to-consumer since VHS, but it's much easier to get access it with something like On Demand or iTunes, where you can essentially go and rent a movie from there instead of, you know, having to go to, to, to a physical store to buy that DVD. Right. So the opportunities that digitization offers have been negotiated by different industries in different ways. So you do a great job raising the issue of the film industry, where, importantly, it wasn't that long ago that even VHS and rental didn't exist as a market. You know, <laughs> film used to be pretty ephemeral, too. A little bit before my time, though. <laughs> so first, we had to create these norms and the availability of, of film on VHS. And what digitization has, has further driven is that possibility of viewing things day and date, uh, not in the theater. And that, I think, has probably been one of the most difficult tensions in the film industry, largely because you have two different groups with two different interests sort of contesting there. You have the studios that own and distribute the content, and then you have the theatrical exhibitors who are very concerned to maintain some reason for people to show up and go to the theater. Yeah. We talked a lot about this in uh, actually probably a couple podcasts um, during our run. Something that amazes me is how much control exhibitors still have where they can say, we're not releasing this movie, and the studio will listen to them. And the studio will then go and say, okay, well, fine, we'll scratch our day and date release. And they'll only do day and date releases with movies that they think they might not have long theatrical lives or will go into a wide release eventually. Exactly. If we look at another industry, television, I think the place that we see the effect of windowing changing the most there is in terms of international distribution and the way for a long time there was there were much bigger gaps around the world between when different content was made and when it arrived in different places and we've seen much more flattening of that as well. We're seeing a lot more day-and-day -day releases of TV shows even than we used to. I think I've been seeing a lot of press releases and stories touting, you know, something like, I think, I know back when 24 Live Another Day came out, 24 is going to premiere day-and-date in tens of countries around well, the world right at that point. And the best illustration of that right now is Game of Thrones, which is being released live in, around the world, even though time zone-wise it doesn't necessarily make sense, but audiences want first access at the same time as the American audience. Especially with the show that relies so much on story and so much on twists and, you know, turns. And why would they want to risk getting spoiled on something big like Ned Stark's head getting cut off? And so the point of this discussion is, is to recognize the way that windowing, although long a strategy that helped media industries make more profit from their content, actually isn't working so well anymore. Um, but interestingly, in, in some media, like books, um, this hasn't been such a problem. I mean, books continue to sell well, regardless of, of 
the norm of, of hardback and then paperback. Or so, even now, ebook is is a whole nother entity in and of itself, but that hasn't cannibalized paper book sales much at all. Now, I think that's been one of the really interesting findings of, of media as they've gone through digital transition. And I think part of that was uncertainty on the part of publishers of whether or not it was a is the ebook a tertiary, a secondary, a third market, or is it just a different good? And I think what has mm-hmm. happened is that the market has acknowledged it as a different good. And so being willing to pay not a diminished price, but a desire upon viewer, uh, readers, in this case, to have the book on, in it's, it's not a secondary window, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Okay. It's some v- readers want to read on their e-devices, some readers want to read on paper, and, and both of those can coexist without necessarily cannibalizing the other. And I think there was a lot of thought when ebooks were first becoming a thing that they're going to go ahead and kill the book industry in a similar way to the conversation about TV with digital distribution hurting linear distribution. So what got us started thinking about windowing uh, this week was an article that we read this summer by Matthew Ball, basically thinking a little bit about what is the future of windowing. His article called Letting It Go, The End of Windowing, and What Comes Next. And in it, Ball has some provocative ideas, recognizing that if this way of, if this form of price discrimination doesn't really work anymore, what other ways might exist for media industries to identify and extract the greater amount of revenue that fans or people very much invested in particular content might be willing to pay while also making it available so that they're still earning some money, not as much, from people who have more of a passing interest. Ball mentions a number of ideas about other ways to discriminate, and honestly, the one that I found the most provocative and interesting to think about was whether or not there is a future for theatrical distribution of television. A theatrical distribution of television, are we talking about something like Game of Thrones being released in theaters around the time, like they released the Battle of the Bastards in theaters and you could go to a movie theater and watch it instead of watching it at your home? Exactly. And so we're not talking about just any episode of anything or this afternoon's Judge Judy, but that they're recognizing the way in which there is television of a certain visual aspiration that the experience, even though we all have better perhaps home viewing than we ever did before, uh, that there's something to be enjoyed in, in seeing contemporary television on the large screen. And I think the other side of it is the idea of a community or a communal experience that, that this captures. And I just, I, it was one of those moments where I had never thought about that before, but I would totally go and see certain things um, at a theater. I question whether or not I, I would. I think it would depend on what it is. And, you know, maybe for something like Game of Thrones, yes, the theatrical release would actually enhance that episode, reading that episode so much because it would need to be TV of a certain visual Splendor, you know, something like Game of Thrones or maybe even something like The Get Down, where a lot of money was spent into making that world visually expansive and you might actually get more looking at it on a big screen. Sure, or even the the finale of Mad Men, these sort of narrative moments in which there is an event that, that means something. And so is this a mass phenomenon? Probably not, but is there enough interest to fill a theater? Perhaps. Another way that Ball identifies to to price discriminate amongst viewers is to figure out ways to have fans pay more. And I think this is where um, my perspective (laughs) as a fan comes in. Um, And it goes to something I brought up earlier with the film industry. So you'll have 
the theatrical release, and then they'll try to get you to buy the DVD. Like the movie in theaters, here's the DVD. And not only is there a DVD, but then here comes this special edition box set with all these extra features that you never thought you would want that cost... I remember Harry Potter put out something like this right around the time of the last DVD release. It was several hundred dollars, but it came in really nice packaging. There were all these bonus things that they threw in there, all these little... There were even some physical bonuses, like Marauder's Maps and things like that. And so, in that case, you're identifying the way in which actually you can earn more from fans by going back to them again and again with the same product, right? That's the fan that was going to see it in the theater. That was the fan who wants it on DVD as soon as possible to get the lower end. They'll come back and perhaps buy the collector's edition. So that's a way of, you know, doubling, tripling the amount of money that you're getting from a fan, and you leave all of your other revenue streams intact for people who just want to see it when it comes out in the film or at the theater or for the people who do want to get the DVD when or it comes out. Or the people out. who might just want to say rent it later or watch it maybe a, a film window that we haven't necessarily talked about which is also blending with streaming is the premium cable window. Your your typical HBO Showtime Stars window that now Netflix is actually eating into and Amazon's eating into a little bit. And so it's interesting, so a lot of these conversations, if we get hypothetical, they're all sort of conversations that consumers are not going to like. But in many cases, you know, if we're thinking about this from an industry perspective, you know, how can I derive more revenue? You know, thinking about television as, as a medium that, that hasn't taken advantage in the same way of some of this, this kind of collector or fan price discrimination, you know, how could that work for television as a medium? And so again, these questions of, earlier access versus waiting. Because for so long, television has been so driven by the notion of time constraints that were part of the broadcasting cable schedule. And I think another industry that's actually taking advantage of the kind of windowing when film is comic books. With comic books, they'll put out, you know, the single issues. And then they'll compile the single issues into a paperback. And then maybe after a few paperbacks, they'll take it and compile it into an even bigger, nicer volume where they'll take a few of those paperbacks and compile it into one larger package. So what they're doing here is they're releasing things in little pieces, then making the little pieces bigger and kind of piling different pieces on top of each other like that. And any comic I've read, I've actually, I have never read in the single issue format. It's all in the paperback format, which I, I mean, I don't read a huge amount of comics, but I think that that's noteworthy in terms of talking about, you know, Maybe a fan who has a single issues might want a paperback because it's a little bit more sturdy than the flimsy comic paper. Yeah. And what Ball is doing in this article is really, you know, it's pushing us beyond our comfort zones because we're familiar with how certain things are priced. But I think there, there are other things that need to be considered here, especially given all of the changes in media industries. And we need new responses. If windowing over time is not going to work anymore, what other strategies might develop? One he raises is the idea of bundling and film going. You know, we, it's, it, we just sort of think about these things. We don't pay any attention to what studio creates our films. Mm -hmm. But if there was a way, let's say, that you bought a 10-pack of Sony films, right? Because bundling as a strategy, I mean, this is why Netflix and other library-based providers, the advantage of the portal is that they're better able to predict satisfaction given the big word here, heterogeneity of taste. So in oh other boy. words, it's hard to predict. And if we look at the theatrical box office, we see this all over. It's hard to predict 
any one text, but it's much more likely that you can put together a collection of content and predict more reliably its success rate, its price point, things like that. I'm used to seeing these kind of uh, things in the bargain bin at a big box store. You know, they'll say, here's three movies on one DVD or something. So that that's, it, it's interesting that they're trying to build onto that because that, I mean, for several years, you know, you'll see, here's the three pack of comedies that might not have sold well on their own, but you might pick them up if they're three for cheap. Or what about a subscription to a movie theater? Again, thinking about the different ways that how we pay for our media content lead us to behave differently. We watch different things with Netflix because it's all in that library than we might explore if we had to pay per good if we were getting them off of, let's say, iTunes. Absolutely. Is there anything else you want to hit in our discussion of windowing, Amanda? Well, I, I just, I, I appreciate the thinking out of the box of it all. There's so yeah. much that we assume has to stay the same. Like, that all, fil- you know, no matter what you film you go see at 8 o'clock this Friday, it's all priced the same. Well, why is that? Should it be that way? Or what can we do to maybe make more money with something like, you know, releasing a movie in 3D? Or releasing it in IMAX? I mean, it's every film in IMAX is the same price point, but not every film gets an IMAX release. Exactly. So, again, from the consumer perspective, this is not necessarily the happiest conversation, (laughs) but recognizing that in some cases media industries are, are really suffering because the pricing strategies and the profit strategies that they that worked in an analog era have become less effective in the digital environment. Because Amanda and I have been pretty busy, we haven't necessarily been watching a huge amount. So instead of closing the show with what we're watching this week, we're going to close with a couple of quick news hits that take into account some of the stories that have been really big in media industries over the past few weeks that we've been Right, instead of watching television, we've been reading analysis of the recently announced purchase of Time Warner by AT&T, which by all accounts is the biggest media deal since Comcast bought NBC Universal. Yeah, $85 billion, Amanda. It's actually more than that because they're buying debt. It's sort of actually, it effectively becomes 120-some when you consider the amount of debt that uh, AT&T is taking on as well. Which is more than 21st Century Fox offered Time Warner a couple years ago when they went to try to buy them. Right, and so that's partly, and and that was a deal that was rebuffed, uh, sort of time, the management at Time Warner felt that that was an underestimation, and apparently so, if AT&T is willing to come along and and pay more. But this, I think, it's early days for this. There are a lot of questions, and so I don't want to devote too much time or thinking, uh, because I think there's a good chance that so I can tell you why, you know, this could go through and why it wouldn't go through, right? Yeah, there's a lot of talk about kind of the regulatory elements behind this deal and essentially this AT&T Time Warner would be one of the biggest if not I think would it actually be the biggest content distributor out there right now AT&T already is the biggest content distributor okay, so this would only direct TV this would make them bigger then. No, because no? this is oh, no, no, this, exactly. This has been some of the confusion. Time Warner Cable is not part of this, and so this is distribution buying content, and so it's it does make AT and T more comparable to Comcast, as Comcast is the only other big distributor that has substantial content holdings. In the sense that they own NBC, NBC and, and the cable channels yeah. um, that NBC Universal owns. So that was a deal that was was reviewed very closely. I think part of that is that NBC. NBC 
is a broadcast station. Time Warner does own some broadcast stations. It doesn't own a network. And so that's a bit of a difference. And, and the idea there as well, that broadcast is regulated differently and that the broadcast stations belong or must serve the public good. That might suggest why this would be an easier deal than Comcast Universal. On one hand, there's a precedent. On the other hand, the media world has changed a lot um, just in the five years since that deal went through so that I, I am uncertain about how much of a precedent that, that case actually sets. Yeah, especially given that Time Warner doesn't really have many methods of distribution to it, if any at all. Well, so this would be the concern. You know? like, yeah. So why as a consumer should I be concerned about this deal? Uh, what does Time Warner own? Time Warner owns HBO. What happens when AT&T buys Time Warner? What if AT&T says, well, the only way you're going to get HBO is if you ha get your internet service from us, AT&T. Like, so that's the exclusivity play here that would yeah. be concerning. Um, and so that's pretty extreme. That's probably not likely to happen, or at least it will be <laughs> forbidden. In, in, in the conditions right. of a deal that a regulatory committee would set. But the stepping back from that ledge, let's say, is, well, what about how things are priced? Could AT&T force a price for other cable providers to access those services that is unreasonably high, et cetera? Because there are some of those Time Warner properties that are considered pretty valuable. So HBO is considered H to be CNN as well right. is considered to be one of the most valuable in terms of news. But again, this is this is this very different moment five years later. Now, HBO, you don't need to get it from your cable provider. You can subscribe to HBO now. Yeah, and so and they could even say something like, you know, going back to that ledge, you can only subscribe to HBO now if you stream it through AT and T. But so this is where then again we come back to who has the wires and where. Yeah. Right. So on one hand, this a, a an AT&T of this scale might be the best hope of developing a competitor for Comcast. On the other hand, they aren't direct competitors in 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 some markets. So AT&T as far as their wired service really has cherry-picked the locations that they've built out their systems. They're mostly in the most lucrative areas. Just here in Ann Arbor, the Burns Park neighborhood of Ann Arbor has historically been the one that has had AT&T as a competitor, whereas on the west side of town, um, AT&T hasn't built. However... Really? Because I had the option of AT&T or Comcast. Yes. Well, a month ago, I found some men in my backyard, and they were stringing fiber. And I asked, well, who do you work for? And sure enough, they were stringing fiber for AT&T. Really? So it does suggest that AT&T is expanding their market, but importantly, they are not going to expand to a nationwide footprint. Uh, they are going to continue to target neighborhoods and environments in which they will be most profitable. And isn't that what all cases companies do isn't that how they isn't that when like comcast and time warner were considering merging it was like oh we don't compete because time warner is in these neighborhoods comcast is in these neighborhoods well it's a little different because at&t historically was a phone provider mm. um so if we go back into the wayback machine to 1996 um that allowed the telcos, the phone companies, to move into providing cable service and the cable companies to move into providing telephone. That didn't turn out to be all that important. But AT&T and Verizon, in some cases, are the only competition that exists for cable companies that are mostly monopoly providers. And, and again, here, this was just beginning to change in the moment of the NBC-Comcast merger. 
at first everyone was paying attention to that, thinking about, well, can I get my favorite channels? And it mm -hmm. soon became very clear that actually the issue here is the internet and that Comcast is the leading internet provider in the country. And so that actually needs to be the focus here as well, thinking about AT&T as a internet provider. And, and, and so, you know, so that's where we come down. There's on the one hand, on the other hand, for just about everything here. You can question whether or not this is going to go through, and we just don't know. The regulatory work hasn't started yet, and a lot of it is going to be impacted by the upcoming election and, you know, who those... Who the new FCC chair is, if there is a new FCC chair. Who might be in the Justice Department, who might be running the Justice Department, who might be the Attorney General. And I think the other piece that has changed since the Comcast-NBC deal is, and, and I don't want to say that we clearly have net neutrality policy because it's still not clear that it's going to survive all of the judicial tests, etc., but we right. seem to sort of have net neutrality policy. Yeah. And that is important because, again, that goes back to something like if you want to have HBO now and you receive your internet service from AT&T, AT&T could not count that data against your, your subscription right. in a way that... that it might count Netflix against that subscription, right. or they might make other internet providers pay more or pay money to even get access to sell you or to, to get HBO now to you. So these are all the new questions that actually haven't been answered. So even though we seem to have precedent on one hand, uh, there's a whole lot we don't have precedent on. So we're going to be keeping an eye on this over the course of the next several months as this deal starts to make its way through the regulatory commissions and whether or not it'll go through. That'll be, that'll be a big day for media. That will be a huge day. It's a long day. It's a long way off, though. All right. Thank you all very much for listening to this episode of Media Business Matters. If you want to listen to more Media Business Matters, you can I go to one of two places right now. You can go to iTunes and search Media Business Matters or amandalots.com and click on the Media Business Matters link at the top of the page. Amanda, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? Dr. TV Lots. D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Intner, at Alex I-N-T-N-E-R. And you can find our listener mailbag at drtvlots at gmail.com. For Amanda Lots, I'm Alex Intner. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back soon.